Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I'm so happy you're here today. I am back from vacation feeling relaxed, refreshed, renewed. It was so nice to have a change of pace and a change of scenery and to spend time with my son and husband, not in Durango at our house. So I highly encourage that if you have not taken a break, that you plan on it. I know that we're not quite back to normal yet, but we will be soon and the entire world needs to take a vacation. We'll all feel better and when we feel better, we show up as better versions of ourselves. We can be better teammates, better leaders, better partners, better parents, better pet owners, whatever it is that you need to be better at, a vacation will help, I promise. Okay, on to my guest. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him before I tell you how I met him. I'm so excited to have Professor Rawi Abdullal on the show today. So Rawi is a professor at the Harvard School of Business. Specifically, he is a Herbert F. Johnson Professor of International Management. He's also the director of the school's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. He's the faculty co-chair of the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative and the faculty chair of the Harvard Business School YPO President's Program, which is where I met him. During his 20 years on the HBS faculty, Professor Abdullah has served in many leadership roles, including the course head for the core course business, government, and international economy. He's the chair of the MBA required curriculum, and he has chaired many custom executive programs for firms worldwide and has twice earned the Green Hill Award for service to the Harvard Business School. So Rowie is awesome. I met him when I attended the HBS YPO President's Program a few years ago, and I was struck by his speaking style and his intellect and his knowledge on geopolitical systems. I am a political junkie and uh, I should say, I am a politics junkie. And so what he talked about resonated with me and I was hopeful to be able to go back to the next year's HBS YPO President's Program, but life got in the way and I haven't attended since, but I do plan to go back. That being said, when the Doing Business Globally Network for YPO decided to put on an election event, I knew I had to reach out to Rowie and see if I could interview him on the 2020 US elections. And he agreed to do it graciously. And we had such an interesting conversation about the outcome and ramifications of the Joe Biden presidency and what was happening in uh, December of 2020, which of course is dramatically changed now. But it was a fascinating conversation with YPOers from all over the world. And afterwards, I asked him if he would come on to reflect forward, and he agreed. So. Rowie and I talk about all kinds of interesting things about the geopolitical system and why we have seen populist movements and how business leaders can profoundly change the world if they choose. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rowie. I'm so glad that he came on the show and hang tight and I'll be right back with him. All 
right, welcome back everybody. I am so glad to have my good friend Rowie here today. Rowie, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me, Carrie. All right, so you've been a professor at Harvard Business School for over two decades. When you were growing up, did you know you wanted to be a professor? So tell us a little bit about your path and how you got to where you are today. Well, that can't possibly be an interesting story, Carrie, but I will say that both of my parents were professors and I have some aunts and uncles and cousins who are professors. And so uh, you might say it is a family business. <laughs> it's an interesting family business. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like the usual family business because we don't really share a business model or assets or income or liabilities, but there's a, a sort of approach to the world that is common. Um, I will say when I was younger, I thought for sure I did not want to be a professor because I did not want to join the family business. But over time, uh, I had some moments during my education when I felt like perhaps I was called to join this little family endeavor. Was it expected that you were going to? Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. I, I think perhaps it was expected that I would take education seriously, but not that I would actually become an educator or become uh, a, a writer and a teacher. So I met you at the Harvard YPO President's uh, Week when I was there a couple of years ago. And I think it has to be pretty in interesting to teach leaders. So what is that like? Well, the way I think about it is that I have a, a few ways I make my presence known in the world, like that I have influence in the world. And one of those ways is by writing books or articles or Harvard Business School case studies. And the other actually much more direct influence I have on the world is through my students, whether they're executive education participants or MBA students or occasionally undergraduates. That set of interactions is really exciting to me in part because I feel like what I'm doing is helping to shape the world for the better. But through my engagement with the intellectual and emotional and professional lives of my students. What's the most difficult thing about teaching either future leaders or current leaders of today? I mean, I, I love teaching and I find it exhilarating. I don't think I happen to mention to you that my name, Rawi, is a very, very old Arabic name, which means storyteller. So Rawi is like the village storyteller. And not that it was like destined that I would become a storyteller in prose or in teaching. Certainly that's not what I want to suggest. But I do feel very much drawn to it and I love my job. I will say the hardest part of my job perhaps is that I'm deeply introverted and deeply, deeply shy. And so I feel in a way in my most natural state while I'm writing by myself with the lights low, listening to box cello suites, and then wandering around in a suit, making pronouncements in front of medium-sized groups of people or large groups of people is extremely taxing for me. And so I get nervous every time and I feel exhausted at the end every time. And so that's a, a sort of personal challenge, I suppose. 
Yeah, well, that's very interesting. So I'm not surprised you're an introvert, but I am surprised that you are very, very, very shy. So how have you overcome that? Because you're constantly on stage. I, I think there are two ways I have overcome that over the years. And I don't know if either of them is especially emotionally or psychologically healthy, but I think one is better than the other. One is that I invented a kind of persona for myself. So not Rowie, the shy and scared little boy from the suburbs of Atlanta, but Rowie, the professor at Harvard with a good tailor who puts on suits and makes pronouncements and speaks in full paragraphs. And so the persona, which is completely invented, by the way, that's not like deep, deep down who I am, was one way of getting through it in the early years. And then I would say more recently, the way I've gotten through it is basically to be more myself, which makes the experience extremely intimate for me. So if I'm going to like bring my whole shy self into these rooms and really be fully emotionally present, the process of that requires a kind of engagement that feels like profound and I guess intimate again is the word that comes to mind. And so I feel like I've become less the persona I invented and more just my dinner party silly self in these conversations with students. But that that has taken a lot of work to to become more me in public. Yeah. You know, interesting. So I, I'm an extrovert, uh even though I really like did you know that? Could you tell? <laughs> I know. Oh, that's, it was so, so hard to tell, Carrie. <laughs> I do like a lot of quiet time. Um, but I also feel that when I show up as my authentic self, that it feels intimate and vulnerable, even though I'm more, maybe perhaps more comfortable doing it uh, than, than you. But it still is the way that we connect so deeply is by showing up with those with our authentic self and whatever is holding us back from doing that, whether it's shyness or fear of being judged or fear, fear of not being liked or or saying something wrong, all of those multitudes of, of reasons, it is a very intimate experience, I think, for most people to really show up like that. Absolutely. And vulnerability is, I think, the right word uh, yeah. that was eluding me, but is I think you're right. That's the, the feeling of it, of actually not being fully in my armor, but actually being vulnerably present. Yeah, my uh, my biggest fear, and I've done a lot of work on this too, is uh, is the fear of not being recognized. And so I put on a persona too, because I was trying to always be what I thought people would like. And it was incredibly damaging to my psyche. And I made a lot of really stupid decisions in my life and had to work, uh, do some pretty profound and deep work to understand where that drive was really coming from. And also then just learning how to embrace it so that I could be my authentic self. You know, in those darkest of moments when, when you're pretending to be somebody else for the, to be liked or to be recognized as something that perhaps you're not, it brings up words that I don't like, like narcissism. And, uh, and those are trigger words. And it's been a really interesting process to like dig deep and, and explore some of those 
things that maybe I don't like about myself, but if I embrace could actually be beneficial to me. So have you uh, experienced something similar? Well, I didn't realize we were going to psychoanalyze. I know. Sorry. I know. I'm sorry. Here I go. Into you. This is what I do, Rowie. <laughs> like, who could possibly be interested in this? Um, oh, absolutely. This is the fascinating thing about people. And after this, we'll go into uh, into your expertise. But I am curious if you're willing to share. Yes. I would say one of the fears that drives us to create personae is that we thereby can hide some aspects of our personality of which we are not proud. And so, you know, I, I hope I'm not a sociopath, but sometimes I worry that I am self-absorbed for sure, but I hope not always completely narcissistic, at least in the sense that I'm unable to get into the heads of other people because I'm so stuck in my own. And uh, I'm not sure I want to give you the whole list for your podcast, but there, those are certainly a couple of, um, of things that come to mind where we hide behind the persona that we create. I think it's very relatable to probably every person on the planet. Right. <laughs> so like my, <laughs> totally like my persona like the guy in the suit seems like he knows everything and has read everything, which I like sometimes, but you know, the truth is I don't, and I haven't. All right, let's jump into your expertise. Uh, can you give us a snapshot of what's currently happening in the world's geopolitical systems? There are a few big trends that are transforming the world. One of them, perhaps at the broadest level is the fact that we're going through a great power transition in the world, which is exciting in a way. We don't always get to live through a, an extraordinary great power transition like this. The last one that the world system had was in the 1910s and 20s, but we're living through one now. The reorganization of economic and military power as China returns to the center of the global system, where it once was a long time ago and now is again. And so rather than the United States sort of alone at the top of the global system, there are two great powers of roughly equal economic size, China and the United States, with very different views about how the system ought to be organized with increasingly difficult relations between them. And that's, I think, one of the central facts about the system. Then the other central fact about the system is that we are living in a second great age of globalization the first one having lasted between 1870 and 1914 or so. And now we're living through a second one. And that has had all sorts of consequences, both for the system and for politics and economics inside countries. Some of the political and challenges we face within countries derive from the consequences of our living through this era of globalization. So looking into your crystal ball, what does that mean for the future? Well, Carrie, I should tell you, uh, and you might have heard me say this before, I don't have a crystal ball. And predicting the future is a business model for lunatics. And <laughs> I am not a lunatic. And so I will always, always resist making pronouncements about what is going to happen, partly out of the philosophical stance that there is no such thing called the future. The future is always multiple scenarios and we have agency over which future we will get. Having said that, 
I think that the system in which we're living is prone to fragmentation and potential disintegration. And so what I would say overall is the collection of facts that broke the last era of globalization are the same collection of facts that threaten to break this era of globalization. And so I do feel like I can say to you and your listeners that if we don't resolve these challenges, this system will come crashing down. And it is still up to us whether we decide to resolve those challenges or not. Is globalization the issue in itself or is it something else? You know, I think in a way it's both, that there's no question globalization has real effects. It creates opportunities for dynamism and growth in the world economy and for particular nations. And within countries, it creates enormous opportunities for wealth creation, for trade that can make all of us better off by making the world more efficient and placing production in particular nations or localities where it kind of ought to be in an economic sense. But globalization also creates winners and losers directly. The returns to talent, to education have grown enormously during this era of globalization. And so globalization has also created greater income inequality within nations and reorganized patterns of production within nations in ways that lots of people find deeply, deeply disappointing. So there are the real effects. And then there are the ways in which globalization is a kind of metaphor for the disappointments as well. So even if it's not globalization's fault per se that something has happened, this sense that many of us have that the people who created globalization, let's say in the United States context, both the center right of the political spectrum and the center left of the political spectrum, that those people, along with the business elites, so the political elites and the business elites who created the system as we know it, that they perhaps don't care about us as much as they should, or at least about many of us as much as they should. And so I think part of the story is the combination of the actual effects of globalization and the sense that globalization is a thing that was chosen by a set of political and business elites who have proven themselves unable to care deeply enough about all of the people who feel left behind by it. Yeah. Well, being ultra wealthy can make it hard to relate to all of those people being left behind. Um, I think, well, I don't have the experience of being ultra wealthy myself, but I, I, I do think that being disconnected in a wide variety of ways, whether it is through the educational system, like people who went through a, an educational system that was all fancy private schools or who send their kids to private schools or who live in a world of power and wealth and can convince themselves that they were not merely fortunate or lucky to be in those positions, but they just earned it because they happen idiosyncratically to be awesome people who rose to the top. And if you don't believe that your good fortune is the result of luck, but only because you just happen to be awesome, it is really difficult to find within yourself empathy for those who have struggled. I noticed that you didn't say the word privileged. How do you think privilege fits into this? The problem with the word privilege 
is that it has become its own sort of trigger phrase or metaphor for a kind of debate in our society in which I'm actually not very interested, which is to say privilege exists, but the word privilege has been freighted with so much extra meaning that I prefer to just say what I mean rather than using the word that people use to describe that and some other things too. I really appreciate that because words do matter and trigger words matter. And it is not something that a lot of people are willing to embrace. So that's why I was curious why you didn't use it because I figured it was on purpose. Yes, indeed. (laughs) All right. How has globalization led to the populist movements that we've seen over the last few decades and particularly here in the United States over the last five years? So it's a great question, Carrie, and, and a difficult one to answer in a kind of succinct way. But I think there's no question that rising income inequality and wealth inequality and the sense of having been left behind by a world economy that moves too quickly and living in a place where the factories used to be and are no longer and where the jobs used to be and are no longer. The consequence of the reorganization of production that also was connected to rising income inequality, it seems to me is an inevitable piece of the story. I think another piece of the story is that the era of globalization in which we're living has also been associated with some profound cultural transformations in the United States and elsewhere, especially in Western Europe. More immigration, more cultural changes that feel, to some people at least, that they're changing the country in some really profound ways. And then I think perhaps most broadly, and perhaps we can talk about this more as well, but Most broadly, I think that we're living in an era in which, for better and for worse, many of us find our sense of purpose and dignity and meaning through our work more than we do through our spiritual lives or through some other community involvement, which used to be, I think, more prevalent. And what that means if we have many people who are not able to find work that is dignified and meaningful and purposeful, that they're being deprived of something that is really essential to have a well-functioning society these days. And so I think we might say that we have a crisis of dignity and meaning and purpose as much as we have a crisis of globalization and inequality. And if you'll allow me to just continue for one more second, I think this is true on both the left and the right. And this might be a controversial thing to say, but I think deep down, there's something quite similar between the Black Lives Matter social uprising and the storming of the Capitol, that insurrection, which is that these are both expressions of the idea that I don't feel heard, I don't feel seen, I don't feel respected, I don't feel that the system treats me with dignity and respect. And the politics of those movements are, of course, wildly different. But underneath, there is, a, I think, a kind of unity of frustration, different kinds of frustration with different time horizons and different historical cycles, but frustration nevertheless. 
I agree with you. I think that the the purpose and work and doing something that we feel like we can create a better life a life for ourselves is a fundamental issue across any culture anywhere in the world. So why do the cultural matters or the cultural issues matter so much uh, if it's not necessarily the underlying reason why these populist movements are happening, or is it is it not quite that simple? I mean, I, I don't. If if I thought it were simple, I wouldn't write about it and talk about it because then it wouldn't be interesting. But I think it is really the combination of these changes around us that feels disorienting to enough people in our societies that they would rather, in a way, embrace a kind of nostalgia, at least for some people, of like how things used to be. Now, that's obviously not central to the Black Lives Matter social uprising. You know, certainly going back in time is not what that is about. It's about making progress. But the whole make America great again narrative is very much a nostalgic narrative, one that imagines within it a time when things were different and better. Another example of it is the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom, which was in a way its own populist uprising. One of the really interesting things about that referendum from the exit polls is that those who voted for the Brexit, which is to say to leave the European Union, have negative associations with globalization. But if you look at the other range of ideas with which they have negative associations, at least through the exit polls after the referendum, they have negative associations with multiculturalism, with social liberalism, with the green movement, with immigration. It is as though everything that has happened during the last 30 years, including globalization, but not limited to it, is bound up as one sort of massive change. Some of it is economic and some of it is cultural. And so there's, in many of these populist backlashes against the system, a very deeply nostalgic view that if only we could just turn back the clock 20 or 30 years to a moment when there was less social liberalism, less green movement, less globalization, fewer immigrants, and so on, then maybe we could recover this glorious past. But there's no returning to the past. And that's the, the hard thing to understand is we can't go backwards. So what what is the end game in all of this with that kind of mindset? I think in a way there's been a crisis of imaginative leadership in both politics and in business. So among the business and political elites, which is that broadly the political and business elites, and I should be clear, I am in a way one of them. So I'm not trying to like cast aspersions. I think it's a bit silly for, you know, the Harvard professor to say like, oh, these elites, you know, like, yes, I, I acknowledge I'm part of this story. But we have been unable to convey to people that the current state of affairs, the status quo, is desirable because it benefits us. And we've been unable to convey that because it only benefits some of us. It does not benefit all of us. And so this is not a marketing problem by itself. Like if we could just explain to people, like, actually, I know you're disappointed, but really this is all great. 
Like that's 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 not what we need to be doing. And so then we've also failed in let's just take the example of the United States in the center of the political spectrum to cultivate a sense of creative, imaginative optimism for the future, that we will get new and interesting ideas about positive change from the center of the political spectrum or from the current set of business and political elites. Because what we've promised is more or less to keep doing what we've been doing. And if enough people, and in some cases, majorities of people feel like the status quo is undesirable and they see no interesting ideas from the center about how things might get better, then what's left other than to have either a radical approach for the future or a nostalgic approach for the past? And so do you think it's possible for us to get back to the center? I definitely do. And if I, did, if I didn't think it were possible to get back to the center, then I could make a prediction, which is this system's going to break and it's going to crash and we're all going to be worse off. But because I believe deeply in human agency and individual agency and in learning and in the creativity of many of the political and business leaders whom I happen to know personally, then I feel like we've been given a task here and an opportunity to make the center creative again, to make the center sexy again. And, you know, one example of that is uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of uh, France, who is not from one of the traditional political parties, who is a centrist and a pragmatist and, you know, knows his way around tailoring as well and has created the possibility of seeing the center as like sexy and interesting and, and productive. And I think we have a chance to try to do something like that in lots of places. You've said that you think that there needs to be a reinvention of uh, geopolitical systems. So can we do that without it completely breaking down? And what does that look like? So one of the things that puzzles me is that when we talk about what motivates people inside our organizations, inside our firms, especially, and we have like 30 years of research on this, which is that what makes people happy in their jobs and their careers is a collection of two things. One, they feel like they're doing something worthwhile. Two, they feel like their bosses care about them personally, about their development. Those two things are what make people tick inside organizations. And then when we talk about the macro questions about the global economy or the national economy, we only talk about money which is weird, right? Like we know what makes people tick inside organizations. And then when we talk about what's going on in the world, we just talk about material things, income inequality, GDP growth, as though we have no access to the insights about what makes people motivated and interested in their lives, in their professional lives at the micro level. And so I think what we have to do is take everything we know about the micro, and bring it into our conversations about the macro and stop only talking about the material things at the macro level, but also talk about these psychological, emotional things that we think we understand increasingly well at the micro level. And so what that means is we need to rebuild and reimagine a world economy and national economies more focused on dignity and meaning and purpose and less focused on 
raw output growth or the material challenges of income distribution by itself. So I do think that is possible. And in part, that's possible because every business leader knows this already. This is like not news. Like if you're running a company or you're a manager in a company, you understand that it's that people for whom you work and with whom you work are not just motivated by money. You understand there's a lot more to it. So these are things we know. We just have to apply them at the macro level. Do politicians understand that this is what motivates people? And are the politicians that we have in our system today capable of making these changes? I really struggle to identify politicians who I think really get it. And in part because I have very little intuition about who they really are, because the political incentives that they face are to seem like they don't get it. So if I think about Senator Cruz, like I have no idea what is in Senator Cruz's heart, but he behaves according to the political incentives he faces and therefore seems to make decisions that are unlikely to make progress at the national level on some of the more profound challenges we face. I don't want to just beat up on somebody from the right. So I'm trying to think of somebody from the left. Okay, so I'll give you another example. Um, Alexandra Ocasio-Ortez, I think is following the political incentives that she faces as well. But the debates we're having between, let's say, the hyper-progressive left, I don't want to say socialist, although we throw that word around a lot in the United States. The the left in the United States is so far away from what socialism actually is. It just seems a little silly to throw that word around. So I don't want to call anybody socialist. I don't want to call anybody fascist either. Like that's, these are historical terms that have meaning and we don't use them in the right way. But let us say the very, very progressive left and the rather reactionary right are following a set of political incentives created by the dysfunctionality of the economy and polity that we have. And it requires an enormous amount of political bravery to disregard those political incentives and actually have the real conversation that we need to have. We have some of those people around, we really do. But so far they have not been the most prominent voices in our conversation. And what we're not doing in the United States is having the, the real conversation, which is like, look, our system is broken. And by that, I mean the economy, not the political system. Our savings rate is too low. Income inequality is too high. Business is too focused on short-term profitability at the expense of the sustainability of this version of capitalism itself. And nobody did this to us. China did not do this to us. Germany did not do this to us. The European Union did not do this to us. Globalization itself did not do this to us. This is a set of practices that we chose. So there's nothing inevitable about a country that has a savings rate of essentially zero. That's what we chose. We chose to consume too much and save too little. And our debates are about blame, either within the country, the left blames the right and the right blames the left, or beyond the country. It was globalization that broke our way of life, or it was China that broke our way of life, without actually saying, like, let's take a good look at ourselves. How did we become this? 
And how can we ourselves recover the practices and ideas that once upon a time made the United States a paragon of democratic practice and economic practice? So we've lost our way, and we lost our way mostly by ourselves. So how do we get out of this perpetual state of victimhood? Because that's what it is. We want to play the victim. Everybody, yeah. right? It, it, we're, we're blaming everybody yeah, else. We absolutely. don't want to take responsibility. Carrie, I have no idea. Why don't you tell us how we're going to get out of this perpetual state of victimhood and not taking responsibility that we've created for ourselves? I mean, I can tell you one intuition, which is I think that some charismatic politician or some set of charismatic business leaders needs to stand up in a brave way and say, let's take a look at ourselves here and what our responsibilities are for what we have become and revisit our responsibilities to each other so that we can feel like a political and social community again. And one of the worst elements of the political practice in the United States today is the demonization of the other side and the inability to have a conversation like a, an honest and polite or at least if not polite then civil conversation about the challenges that we face yeah so i don't know and i'm not a politician obviously so like i'm just a nerd sitting you know in Boston, trying to make sense of what's happening around me and trying to teach about and write about what's happening around me. But I don't have the creativity of many of the business leaders and political leaders who could really make a difference. And so for me, it feels like an exhortation to creativity. Like all of you people who are doing all of these amazing things in business and applying your creativity to solving so many different kinds of problems. Can we take like 10% of that creativity and aim it at sustaining the system itself? But I promise you, if I knew the answer, I would tell you. Well, I do think it starts with business leaders and the people, right? Our politicians are a reflection of us and they amplify and bring out the totally. worst. And so yeah. we have to decide that we want something different as people. We are not going to change because our politicians change because we are electing them. And I yeah. might argue that our political system is broken because we continue to play to the bases to get elected rather than the center, which most of us are center right or center left. Uh, but it's impossible to be centrist and make it through the primaries <laughs> these days. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, so if I have decided, okay, I was going to run for president, which I had like for a brief moment, a crazy notion of doing, I was, how am I ever going to get elected? I'll vote for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I've had lots of people, both on the left and right, tell me they would vote for me. Uh, yeah. uh, but how do, how do you get elected? How do you even get to that point where then you can start to bring in the good foundation of leadership principles and governing and growing and bringing people together? Because that is not who makes it on the ballot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there's an even, at the moment, more foundational problem. So I'm going to use a phrase that I love that my son thinks is like an absurd phrase to throw around because it's so nerdy. But I will invite you to use it at your next dinner party, whenever dinner parties are a thing again. So I think we are living through a great age of epistemological fragmentation. 
So epistemology is the branch of philosophy, as you know, Carrie, that deals with how we know what is true and what is not true. Super nerdy way to say, we don't live in the same truth space anymore. We live in alternate truth spaces. And it is really difficult to have a civil conversation about what's going on in our society or in the world if we cannot agree on what is true and what is not true. Remember Daniel Patrick Moynihan in one of the debates in the Senate once upon a time said, you are entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. I think we actually have a new entitlement around us today, which is that you can have whichever facts you want. And if we can't live in the same truth space, then we cannot possibly have a civil conversation about policies, about ideas. Yeah, I agree with you completely. All right, so let's take it back to business leaders. When you think about the, the fundamental problems that, that you've outlined, maybe you can summarize them again. And what do you think business leaders can do to tackle each of these things specifically or collectively um, and holistically? So I think at the broadest level, business leaders should feel that they are responsible for sustaining the system that makes their businesses possible in the first place. That there is a need to make sure that globalization, more or less as we know it, that capitalism in the United States, more or less as we know it, is fragile that it's not actually some set of rules and practices and ideas that cannot be changed. We know from history that they can be broken. This is the only certainty we have. There's nothing inevitable about any of this. When the last globalization era came crashing down in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, it was extremely destructive, physically destructive, but also for capitalism, for business. That's a kind of potential calamity that I think we do not take seriously enough. Like if we just keep doing what we have been doing, we will head, I think, or at least I fear, toward a kind of collapse of the system. So I think we need to, first of all, take seriously our responsibility for the system itself, for capitalism itself. And that should change how we think about our engagement with politics and politicians whom we support and the kinds of political agendas we support and trying to broaden our appetite to affect politics beyond a firm or beyond an industry. Like we spend lots of money on lobbying, but we don't lobby to, to save the system. We lobby to change the rules of a particular industry or sometimes a particular firm. But what if we spent some tiny fraction of all of that lobbying money on things that might save the system? That's a lot of influence that goes through that process. But then also, I think at the local level, and perhaps it's at the local level where some of the challenges can be best met by business leaders. We have a crisis of small business creation in the United States. We think that we're a country of mostly small businesses. We're not actually compared to our peers. Most people work in big companies, not in small companies. We don't have a financing system that supports small businesses. Lots of entrepreneurs have to finance their creations with credit cards and personal debt rather than through long-term relationships with banks. We have a crisis of education in that not only are not enough of our children mentored well, 
but they're being told that there's only one path to the middle class and that goes through college and taking on huge amounts of debt in order to make their way into the middle class and then finding themselves disappointed. And so I think that there are so many things we can do at the local level. I would say business leaders should be mentoring potential entrepreneurs in their communities. We should be mentoring high school students. We should be making sure that local educational systems create the possibility for cooperative education and internships and skills-based training as part of the high school experience. So that what high school is for some people can be a path to university. And for some people, it can be a path to a well-paid, meaningful career that does not require a university education. And then I think making sure that local banks support local businesses. And so I bet there are lots of business leaders who sit on the boards of local banks and who could take on the responsibility of making sure that local finance supports local entrepreneurship. And so all of these things are doable. And those, these are just the things that come to my mind. Like I don't sit on any boards of local banks and you know, I'm sure there, if you just start thinking about it in this way, like what do we need? We need people in our communities to have jobs that confer upon them dignity and meaning and purpose and dare I say it, honor. If we take that as the goal and then start thinking about how we adjust what local banks do, how we adjust what we do as mentors in a variety of ways, how we adjust how educational systems in our communities function, making sure we're bringing into our organizations high school students and helping to build their skills for careers that could exist and do exist and would be like great middle class jobs. So these are things that come to my mind. But if we just take a step back and say, what we need is creativity. If we understand the goal that we're trying to achieve, then let's think through all of the pieces of the capitalist system that can help us to achieve that goal. Everything you said was so validating. <laughs> Yay, I'm doing it right. <laughs> oh, I, I so believe in it. I, you know, the company that I run is an employee-owned company, and we yeah. believe in sharing the success of the organization with the employees. And I'm so proud that we create a strong middle class in the tiny little town that I live in. And not just middle class mm -hmm. who can afford to go out to restaurants and ski at our ski resort and go on vacations and go to the local bookstore, but that they love their jobs. But I have, I have, I employ 150 people around the world. And while that's not insignificant for a small town like this, it's a drop in the bucket. But I just want to like shake these leaders of big corporations to say you can make such a profound change if it wasn't trying to get your shareholders more wealth because they are not the ones who need it. It's all of the people who are creating that wealth for them. But yeah. I just feel like I'm banging my head against the wall. So I'm trying to model it as best as I can and talk about it as often as I can. But it is, it is actually not that hard to make that change that we have to stop being so focused on uh, profits for corporate shareholders. Totally agree. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, vote for me if I run. <laughs> <laughs> My husband won't let me. Okay. And if you do, I, I, I want um, Secretary of State, by the way. <laughs> oh, you, you will be in my administration. There is no doubt. <laughs> I will write that down, Secretary of State. Mm. All right. 
Well, Rowie, this has been such a fun interview. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show today and give us your insight and to, to have a fun conversation with me. I always appreciate our, our time together. My pleasure, Carrie. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone, hang tight and I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rowie. Uh, so much fun. I just love having these types of conversations, and he's so insightful. So I appreciate him letting me ask some personal questions and giving us his perspective on the geopolitical systems and what leaders can do to make the world a better place. And it totally resonates with me. As you know, I'm a big believer in employee ownership and building the middle class from the middle out. And businesses can absolutely do that if they choose to. Okay, on to my question. So it comes from another gal on LinkedIn who said, are you on Clubhouse yet? So I thought this would be fun because I'm just starting to play around with Clubhouse and I think it's a really interesting platform. So first, what is it? It is a social networking app that allows people to gather in chat rooms to discuss anything. You can't see each other, it's just an audio platform, and it has a moderator who oversees the discussions, which I love because I love interviewing, so I'm super excited to be putting on my first Clubhouse event. Stay tuned because it's gonna be so much fun. I've got some great people coming on as my uh, inaugural Clubhouse event. Well, maybe I might do a smaller one just to practice, but anyway, I'm super excited about it. Uh, I have been into a few Clubhouse discussions and they have been interesting, some better than others. It all depends on the speaker and for sure the moderator. I know that panel discussions are really hit or miss and it takes great panelists and a great moderator. So I'm definitely going to be exploring how people present topics and moderate topics and are panelists on Clubhouse topics because I think it could be a really engaging platform and I'm really excited to be able to start using it because I think it's a great way to be able to spread the message about impactful leadership, servant leadership, and also about employee ownership, which as I just said, is something that's really important and near and dear to me and something that I think a lot more business leaders should consider as we are trying to fix some of the world's problems. So I'm going to use Clubhouse to promote those things because I think impactful leadership, social impactful leadership and employee ownership are so important to our future. So anyway, thank you for letting me talk a little bit about Clubhouse. Stay tuned. Uh, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I'm sure that it's going to be a fun platform to be able to host events and to continue to moderate an interview, which is something that I'd love to do. Okay, so that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Reflect Forward, and I look forward to hosting you on the next one. Take care.